Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. My name is Erica Sanderson, and this is the Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the folks who created my favorite mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. If you've ever played other Match 3-style games, you'll notice right away that Best Fiends is not only wicked good fun, but absolutely the best of its kind. I really like that this game has a story and something fresh to offer, a new approach that makes it fun and engaging. If you're not familiar with Best Fiends, it has something we love here at the Wicked Library, a story. Now, this story has the fiends who are the good guys and the less than good, even a bit wicked guys, the slugs. When you start out, your fiends are baby versions of what they will eventually become. As you play, more fiends join your team, and they grow more powerful, so they can help you solve more wickedly challenging puzzles as you move forward. Not only is it something I know our listeners love, an activity that makes you think and gives you action and adventure, but there's also new content added all the time, so it stays fresh and fun. I like to play it when I'm waiting for appointments or when I need to take a quick break from mixing and editing together episodes of the show. Just like the Wicked Library, it's fun that reminds you of being a kid, even though it is definitely made for adults. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's Fiends without the R, Best Fiends. Hello. Welcome to Season 11 of the Wicked Library, season of sci-fi horror. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. The Wicked Library owes its ongoing growth and success to so many amazing people. In many ways, the show belongs to those who have made it possible. The authors, the voice actors, composers, artists, and of course, those of you who listen and support the show and its contributors. So, starting next Sunday, I'll be handing the mic over to a series of guest hosts. For our Halloween and El Dia de los Muertos episode, our good friend and frequent storyteller Addison Peacock will guest host. Others like Graham Rowett, Jeanette Andromeda, Mother Horror, and Jessica McAvoy, just to name a few, will be hosting over the rest of the season. Visit thewickedlibrary.com forward slash hosts to take a look at who else will be hosting the show this season. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews help others find the show, and we love hearing from you. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing you're part of making the show possible, you also get rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Lastly, if you don't know already, we do post a weekly book review and recommendation column to thewickedlibrary.com. The column is called Fully Booked with Brianna Morgan, and in line with our mission, you'll find reviews with a strong focus on indie and small press horror fiction. Head to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash booked to check them out and watch our Twitter feed at Wicked Library for notices when new reviews post each week. Today's dark tale, An Acid Trip Through Time, was written for us by TWL alum Michelle Renee Lane. 
The story is brought to life by the very talented G.P. McKenzie, who is new to our show, but certainly not new to voice acting, and a custom score by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Remember, some boxes are best left closed, and some trips are best not taken. Now, stick out your tongue, and let's find out where today's trip might lead. The acid kicked in ten minutes before we got to Christina's. Taillights streamed neon trails against the creeping darkness of dust. I could have sworn that Glenn Danzig crooned Lizzie Rides the Night, but I'd listened to Danzig sing She Rides like a million times in Joel's car and knew better. This was my fourth acid trip in two weeks. I guess that was one of the perks of dating a dealer. I hadn't intended to trip tonight. But Craig slipped a tab on my tongue when he kissed me, dosing me against my will. He'd asked me to spend the night at his apartment. I said I couldn't. I had to get home. That wasn't what he wanted to hear. He begged me to stay, said he missed me, wanted to know where I'd been the past three weeks. I knew he thought I was spending time with someone else. His jealousy issue surfaced every time he saw me talking to one of my male friends. I had a lot. Of male friends. A dark voice inside me wanted to tell him I'd been hanging out with his friend Joel. I liked Joel, but I didn't like like Joel. Craig didn't need to know that. All he needed to know was I spent a lot of time alone with Joel getting high, listening to Zeppelin while stretched out on my bed in the dark. Sometimes we snuggled and took naps. Sometimes he drew these cool fake tattoos on me with a sharpie. And sometimes... He just sat, listening to me while I talked about my plans for the future. What I was reading, the plot of a movie I liked, my weird dreams, and, recently, the places I'd been going when I dropped acid. In fact, Joel was the only one who knew about my adventures on acid. He believed me. Or, at least he didn't question what I told him. I was pretty sure Joel, like, liked me but I didn't want to ruin what we had between us and make things weird by becoming his girlfriend. I decided not to tell Craig how much time I was spending with Joel. I wasn't sure what to tell him. I mean, I had been going to school and work after school and on weekends, but beyond that, I wasn't sure. I had not I'd gone places, but I couldn't explain how I'd gotten there. One minute? I was in my bedroom listening to music, and the next I was somewhere else. It was like walking through a dreamscape. But I could smell and taste and feel things, as well as see and hear them. I had full-on conversations with people that I remembered, word for word. I had always had vivid dreams, night terrors even. But nothing ever so real as what had been happening recently. Because I didn't know how to put what I'd been experiencing into words he could understand, I made up an excuse about being behind on homework and studying for the SATs or some other bullshit. The truth was, I wanted to spend more time by myself. All the partying was getting to me. I needed to take a break. Sure, I'd dropped acid a few times, but I'd done it to deepen my meditation. And that's when I started going on these crazy trips. At first, I thought it was just happening inside my mind, but things were too real to simply be drug-induced hallucinations. I'd been successfully practicing lucid dreaming for about six months when I picked up a book on astral projection. I tried following the steps outlined by the author, and Joel agreed to watch over my body just in case. But nothing happened until I started dropping acid. 
Three weeks ago, when I began ignoring my friends and refused to take calls, I spent the weekend under a bare black light bulb, listening to Dead Can Dance and Christian Death, while gazing at my own reflection in a mirror. Halfway through the first hour, the mirror disappeared, and I was transported to a desert. An Egyptian priest, dressed in a white tunic, stood atop a sand dune waiting for me to join him. As I got closer, he turned and beckoned for me to follow. The sand was hot under my bare feet, and my muscles ached from climbing over dunes for what felt like miles in the desert. In the distance, through a haze of heat rising above the sand, I could make out a large structure. The priest led me there. He didn't look behind him. He just assumed I would follow. I think another hour passed by the time we reached the large stone structure. But I wasn't sure. Now that we were closer to the building, I saw that it was a pyramid still under construction. Men of all skin tones labored to drag enormous blocks up a ramp that ran from the base of the structure to the top. The sound of the blocks scraping along the ramp had a hypnotic quality that could have easily lulled me to sleep. I must have been staring with my mouth open because there was a fine grit of sand between my teeth when I continued to follow the priest inside the pyramid. The cool darkness was pleasant after walking in the hot sun. The priest held a torch in his hand. He was about to say something when a scream grabbed our attention and the scraping stopped. The shock on the priest's face made me turn and run outside. A man lay on the ground. His shin bone poked out of his skin at a weird angle and his forehead was dented. Blood covered his face and spilled onto the sand. I never found out what happened to the man because my mom opened my bedroom door and the light from the dining room made the darkness retreat into the corners. I was still tripping, but I couldn't focus enough to reach that trance-like state again. I couldn't get back to Egypt to find out what the priest wanted from me. Three weeks later, I still wanted to get back to the desert. Maybe I could sneak away from the party later and find a quiet quarter to hide in, like an off-limits bathroom in the master bedroom. It was getting easier and easier to travel, all I needed was a quiet space so I could concentrate. I had never been to Christina's house before, but she needed a ride to the show and after party, and Joel had offered to pick her up. When her mom answered the door, her smile slipped, but she quickly recovered and asked if I was Christina's friend, Lizzie. I nodded, hoping there was a smile on my face. This particular batch of LSD that Craig called Sound of Thunder, the acid I'd been taking when I ended up in the desert, made it difficult to gauge how I projected my emotions to the outside world. The acid didn't exactly make me antisocial, but it definitely encouraged introspection. I was becoming an expert at navel-gazing as well as astral projection. Christina's mom stood in the door like a bouncer scrutinizing a fake ID. I wasn't sure if she was going to invite me in. A lot of parents are like that. They tried to be polite, but a punk rock black girl with dreadlocks and the sides of her head shaved, wearing combat boots and a t-shirt that read Nazi punks fuck off, gave most adults in rural Pennsylvania something to gawk at. I tried not to take it too personally, but failed most days. Choosing the less traveled path and Becoming a visible target when you are already considered an outsider required a level of commitment and courage that was overwhelming sometimes. People stared at me anyway, because my parents are a mixed couple. I got tired of listening to all the stupid things people say to biracial kids. Are you adopted? Or do you perm your hair? Or my personal favorite, you aren't really black which was meant as a compliment when white people said it, but a put down when black people said it. Either way, it was always hurtful. So I decided to ramp things up and really give people something to stare at. Christina's mom looked nervous when she told me Christina wasn't ready yet. I assumed we'd be waiting on the porch or in the car. That's okay, I said, we're early. Her eyes were set in a wild stare, and she was working extra hard to seem friendly. But her smile looked more like the first stages of rictus and made her appear insane. 
Maybe it was just the acid making me overly sensitive. I tried to ease her tension and therefore my own. We can just wait in the car. Craig and Joel weren't any help. They were both completely silent. As soon as I said car, they sprinted halfway down the front steps. Chicken shits, I thought. A man's voice boomed from inside the house. He wanted to know if Sandy was going to invite us in or not because he wanted to meet Chrissy's friends. Sandy didn't seem to know what to do. A weird mixture of emotions raced across her face, making her look like an animatronic wax figure. Finally, she invited us in. Picturing Sandy as an animatronic wax figure made me think of fun houses, which, honestly, were never very fun. Thinking of fun houses triggered a sensory memory of the smell of grease paint mixed with popcorn and cotton candy, and I thought about the horror movie The Fun House I had watched a few weeks back, and I didn't want to go inside. There might be clowns inside. Or worse, murderous carnies. Fucking movie gave me the creeps. I slept with the light on for two nights. I tried avoiding the horror shelf on my next trip to the video store. That lasted about ten minutes. I saw the cover for Motel Hell and forgot about needing to sleep with the light on. Craig and Joel were suddenly back on the porch behind me. They followed me into the house. Christina's dad called for us to come into the family room. He was stretched out in a lazy boy with his back to us. ESPN was on the TV with the sound turned down. Before I could set foot in the family room, Craig grasped my arm hard enough that it hurt and pulled me towards him. Angry that he'd grabbed me, I tried to pull away. His grip tightened and he whispered against my ear that we should wait in the car. Going back outside would not only be weird, but rude. I tried to pull away again, and once again he tightened his grip. He was pissing me off. I turned to face him and mouthed the words, What the fuck? He gestured dramatically toward the opposite wall while maintaining eye contact with me. I really looked at him then. He was trying to tell me something and getting upset that I wasn't listening. I looked where he was pointing, and all the air left my lungs. I grasped his hand tightly and he squeezed back. Above the mantel, where Christina's school pictures were on display in chronological order, was one of the biggest Nazi flags I'd ever seen outside of a World War II movie. Christina's dad still hadn't turned around, so he had no idea that his precious Chrissy was going out with a nigger, a wetback, and I'm sure he would have called Joel a race traitor, which was not only racist, but also grammatically incorrect. The last time I heard somebody say race traitor was at a show in Lancaster. The place was crawling with white power skinheads. I corrected him and said, you mean race traitor. Then Joel got in a fist fight with the asshole after he threatened to punch me in the face. I stared at the giant SWAT sticker floating in a white background upon a sea of red. I swear I heard boots marching, an air raid siren, and people shouting in German. I noticed the mirror on the adjoining wall. I caught a glimpse of myself about the same time Christina's dad noticed my reflection, and everything went black. When I opened my eyes, I was still looking at a Nazi flag, but I wasn't in Christina's family room. I lay on my back on a train platform surrounded by people in drab winter clothing. Each and every one of them had a yellow six-pointed star sewn to their chests, with the word Jude stitched in the center in black thread. My breathing sped up. I paid attention in my AP history class. I knew where I was without having to ask. My mouth filled with saliva the way it does right before I puke. I couldn't get my breathing under control. My chest tightened like a fist and a headache bloomed at my temples. My vision swam. Or maybe that was just the acid. I tried to speak, but my voice came out in a strangled rasp. My throat was sore like I'd been screaming. Had I been screaming? A girl wearing a blue coat with a smudge of dirt on her cheek touched my dreadlocks and smiled. I smiled back. Someone shouted. The people around me huddled closer together like they were trying to hide me. 
I didn't need to understand the words the man said to know that everyone around me was scared. Sometimes, if people were feeling angry or nervous or any strong feelings, I could channel their emotions. Being an empath who loved LSD could be really exhausting at times. Their fear seeped into me. I became a sponge for the grief, terror, rage, and confusion that circled me. I needed to get my breathing under control. Needed to figure out how to get back to Christina's family room or somewhere safer. I touched my face and the top of my head. Solid. I'd never tried touching myself on these trips, so I had no idea if I had been traveling using my astral body or if I was actually traveling to these places, these times. Lying on the platform, listening to the man shouting in German, watching the people tremble with fear, I realized this was the first time I'd ever felt like I was in danger on one of my trips. In the desert with the Egyptian priest, I had felt calm, at peace, at home. At least, I felt that way until the man fell off the pyramid. I was supposed to be there. On other trips, I'd taken a walk in an ancient forest and felt connected to the land and the trees. I sat along a riverbank and watched a fireworks display while families ate from picnic baskets and oohed and odd each time the sky lit up with colors. Now I was staring at a giant Nazi flag outlined by gray storm clouds in the sky as a train pulled into the station. The men shouted again, and other men in uniforms pushed their way through the crowd of people. Men, women, boys and girls were separated and herded into the train cars. I was at the center of the crowd near the back of the platform. The girl who had smiled at me offered me her hand. I took it and stood up. I thanked her and, and took a few steps just to make sure I was steady on my feet. Blacking out right now would be bad unless it meant waking up in Christina's family room. Not exactly safe, but a hell of a lot safer than where I was at the moment. There was a five-foot drop to the gravel-covered ground behind me. I couldn't stay on the platform. I couldn't risk being seen by the soldiers. I didn't belong here. My clothes were too modern, my hair was too wild, my skin too dark, and my shirt was an open invitation to be shot on sight. Why couldn't I have worn a plain black t-shirt or one of my vintage dresses? Oh, I had to be a smartass and wear a t-shirt that openly taunted the Nazi skinheads that came to hardcore shows. Well, now I would be taunting actual Nazis in Nazi Germany. Fuck. I slowly backed away from the crowd and made my way to the edge of the platform. Two soldiers struggled to separate a husband and wife clinging to each other with every ounce of strength they had. One of the soldiers noticed me and made eye contact before I jumped off the platform and disappeared over the edge. I landed feet first and twisted my ankle. When I put weight on that foot, I bit the inside of my cheek and took deep breaths to try to keep from screaming. Not that it mattered because I'd been spotted. Fuck! Fuck, 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 fuck! I tried putting weight on the foot again, and the pain made me nauseous. I took a deep breath and forced myself to move. The pain was intense, but I couldn't stay under the platform. Soldiers would be looking for me. I heard the dogs. Pain or no pain, it was time to run. But I couldn't run, so I speed limped until I found a better hiding place. The underside of a parked car. Lying flat on my belly, I frantically searched for another hiding place. Less than ten feet away, there was a narrow alleyway with a row of shops along one side. I could still hear the dogs, but they hadn't spotted me yet. I climbed out from under the car, stayed low, and limped my way to the alley. The first shop was owned by a tailor, but it was closed. In fact, most of the shops were closed. It had been a Friday night in 1985 in Christina's family room. I had no idea what day it was in 1940s Germany. As I approached the end of the alley, I noticed that one shop appeared to be open. At least, the interior lights were on. It was a bookstore. The sign above the door read, Seltin Bucher. I was about to open the door to the shop 
but stopped. What if the shop owner turned me in? What if they alerted the soldiers and they came to take me away? I had read that Germans turned in their own neighbors to the Nazis. Why wouldn't the shopkeeper turn me in? I was a stranger, with dark skin, unusual clothes, and I didn't speak a word of German. In fact, my accent was distinctly American. Would they think I was a spy? The sounds of barking dogs and jackboots were getting closer. I had to take a chance. I stepped inside the bookstore. A bell rang when I opened the door, alerting anyone inside that I was there. I hoped they wouldn't come looking for me right away and duck down a row of bookshelves. Maybe there was another way out. The shop wasn't very big, and there were only so many places to avoid being seen. Thankfully, there was no one else in the shop. I would only have to deal with the owner. I had the strangest feeling of deja vu. The bookstore felt familiar. The smell of old paper bound in leather always put me at ease, relaxed me. Books were leather-bound tranquilizers that gave me an overwhelming sense of peace. If they could bottle that delightful mixture of mustiness, earthiness, and that sweet note that reminded me of vanilla, I'd wear that fragrance every day. Maybe I was just thinking of other times I'd been surrounded by old books, like in one of my favorite used bookstores, or perusing the shelves in the rare book collection at the library. Yeah, <laughs> that was it. It wasn't that the store was familiar. It was how the books made me feel that gave me the sense of being here before. Of course I'd never been to this bookstore. I'd never been in 1940s Germany. I heard a door open. Not the front door, no bell. Heeled shoes click-clacked towards me across the hardwood floor. I held my breath and tried to stay very still. No matter how quiet or still I could be, I wasn't invisible. A feminine voice called out a greeting. Even though I didn't know what Guten Nachmittag meant, the tone of voice was pleasant, non-threatening. I didn't answer right away and the footsteps got closer. Before I could decide what to do, a woman with snow-white hair wearing a simple yet elegant red dress and green heels appeared around the corner, beaming at me. Despite my unusual appearance, her expression didn't change. She smiled at me like she knew me. She greeted me by name in German-accented English. I stared at her like she'd gone crazy. Or rather, I was the one going crazy. How the hell did a woman living in 1940s Germany know my name? Who are you? I asked. She acknowledged my confusion without missing a beat, the smile never leaving her face. She explained that her name was Madeline and that this was not my first visit to the bookstore. During my first and consecutive visits, we had agreed that erasing my memory was probably for the best. Oh, well, that explained everything. Yeah, not even close. Do you know how I got here? I asked. She walked toward the front of the store. I followed, but kept my distance. I'd seen enough movies to know that people could pretend to be friendly and then turn on you when you least expected it. What if she knew who I was, but I didn't really know her? What if she was setting a trap? waiting for me to get comfortable so she could call the soldiers to come take me away. Or worse, what if she was some kind of witch who used her powers to make me travel back through time for some horrible reason that had nothing to do with the Nazis? Maybe I needed to start watching something other than true crime and horror movies. Madeline locked the front door and turned over a sign that I assumed said the store was closed. She crossed the room to the door she must have come through and motioned for me to join her. My gut told me not to follow her, but I did anyway. On the other side of the door was a quaint little sitting room crowded with green velvet armchairs and dark wood furniture. Lit candles stood on a small table between the chairs, and a tea kettle began to whistle in another room. Madeline disappeared for several minutes and returned with a tray laden with a teapot, china cups, a milk and sugar service that matched the cups and a plate of cookies. My stomach growled. I'd skipped dinner and planned on grabbing a bite on the way to the show, but that never happened. Food never really appealed to me when I was on acid. 
wait, how much time had passed since I'd taken the acid? I checked in with myself. My stomach cramps, an unfortunate side effect of eating LSD mixed with strychnine, were gone. I waved my hand in front of my face. The movement didn't leave any trails behind. Colors were no longer excessively vibrant. I couldn't see the corona that formed around the candle flames. I must have come down shortly after jumping off the train platform. Stress and pain could end your trip, I guessed. Madeline set the tray on the small wooden table between the two armchairs and gestured for me to sit. The pain in my ankle went out over my suspicions. I sat down. She poured me a cup of tea and offered me the milk and sugar, items that should have been scarce during wartime. I fixed my tea and took a cookie still warm from the oven. It was the most delicious gingerbread cookie I'd ever tasted. I was starting to let my guard down, and then I heard her voice inside my head. I know that the soldiers are looking for you, so let's communicate with our voices just in case they come here. I opened my mouth to speak, and she covered her lips with one index finger and pointed to her temple with the other. She was telling me to speak to her the same way. I raised an eyebrow at her in disbelief. I didn't know how to speak using only my mind. Hell, until that moment, I didn't know that telepathy was a real thing. She smiled and nodded at me, silently encouraging me to give it a try. Mimicking the people I'd seen in old movies who could read minds, mainly fortune tellers, I placed the fingertips of my index and middle fingers against my temples closed my eyes, and thought at Madeline. Testing, testing. One, two, three. Can you hear me? Laughter filled my head. I opened my eyes to see Madeline covering her mouth to hold in an actual laugh. I wanted to be angry, but her laughter was infectious. Someone banged on the front of the door. We both stopped laughing. Again, she covered her lips with her index finger. She handed me the plate of cookies before she went to answer the door. Despite the fear twisting like snakes in my gut, I ate two more cookies. Didn't Ginger settle your stomach? Madeline opened the door and several people I assumed were soldiers came into the store. I, I couldn't hear what was being said, nor could I have understood them even if the door between the shop and the sitting room had been left open. I got the sense that the men were frustrated with Madeline because their voices kept getting louder. I heard them coming toward the door to the sitting room. I hurried into the kitchen, hoping to find a place to hide. There was a narrow pantry next to the stove. I turned sideways to slide into the cramped space and tried not to make a sound. With the door closed, it was dark enough inside that I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Someone banged on the door to the sitting room. Madeline spoke in a raised voice as well. Was she, was she trying to warn me? The door slammed open and the sound of boots on hardwood reached me in the kitchen. A man shouted orders, but I didn't understand the words. He <sighs> would notice that there were two teacups on the table. I cursed myself for not grabbing my cup before hiding. I listened carefully. Judging by the voices, there were at least three soldiers in the sitting room. One of them was heading toward the kitchen. I listened carefully. Judging by the voices, there were at least three soldiers in the sitting room. One of them was heading toward the kitchen. Before he had a chance to set foot on the red and black checkerboard tiles, Madeline said my name and told me to cover my ears and shut my eyes in English. She'd admitted to hiding me, but I still did what she told me to do. For some reason, I trusted her. Seconds before I closed my eyes and covered my ears, a blinding light seeped under the pantry door and gave off an intense heat. A high-pitched siren that reminded me of a smoke detector, but at a frequency that made my ears ring and head pound, filled the air. Madeline's voice was in my head again. Keep your eyes closed and ears covered, Lizzie. The hair at the back of my neck stood on end. The floor shook and cans and boxes fell off the shelves around me. I'd never experienced an earthquake, but I was sure it felt like this, minus the blinding light and hellish noise. The men's shrieks became a chorus of terror to accompany the screeching wall of sound. I couldn't understand their words, but I knew they were begging for their lives. And then, 
all was silent. When I entered the sitting room, Madeline stood near the door holding a small wooden box. The lid was closed. Her hand rested on top of it. Furniture had been overturned and Madeline's hair was swept around her face in disarray. The twisted bodies of the soldiers were strewn about the floor. Blood leaked from their ears and noses and black, bloody holes were all that was left of their eyes. They were dead. At least, I hope they were. What happened? I asked. Madeline placed the box on a shelf near the fireplace, then asked me to sit. I had to pick up an overturned armchair before I could sit down. She did the same. What was that? I asked. She brushed the hair out of her eyes before making direct eye contact with me. What do you know about Pandora's box? Um, not much. It was supposed to contain plagues or evil or something like that. She nodded. I pointed at the shelf. Is that Pandora's box? She laughed. The question sounded ridiculous to me, too. Okay, if it isn't Pandora's box... What is it? She launched into a story about how she was a scientist, researching ways to create technology based on myths and supernatural occurrences with a foundation of truth. When you open the box, it released a compound of weaponized phosphorus to make the blinding light, and a mechanism like the inner workings of a music box created the sound. I was impressed, but that didn't explain how I'd gotten to 1940s Germany. How am I traveling through time? She explained the LSD was the catalyst. Well, duh. Can you elaborate on that? Apparently, she and other scientists had developed a drug that allowed people to time travel. The drug was then added to various products in different time periods to test how well it worked. Why me? I asked. She shrugged. You're one of our most successful test subjects. That made sense. But why had I gone to Egypt? Why had I gone to that forest and fireworks display? I couldn't control where the acid took me. Could I? How am I choosing where to go? How do I control my destination? We're still working on that, she said. We think... Travel occurs when subjects concentrate on an object, image, or sound that evokes a specific time period. What were you looking for right before you came here? A flag with a sweat sticker on it. She fidgeted in her seat. A ghost of a smile crossed her lips, and her eyes sparkled in the candlelight. Go on. Her expression made me uncomfortable. I had a bad habit of ignoring my intuition. Maybe I should have listened to my gut earlier. Something told me not to trust Madeline, but I continued telling my story about the Nazi flag in Christina's family room. She leaned forward in her seat, seemingly riveted by my story, and asked if people still followed Nazi ideology. Unfortunately, yes, I said. Governments thrive on the hatred that keeps people from unifying around a common goal like toppling corrupt governments or dismantling the systems that keep people oppressed and impoverished. Hatred and greed still make the world go around in my time, Madeline. Hmm. Speaking of your time, she said, you need to get back to it. How? There's nothing from my time here to focus on. She handed me a small mirror and told me to concentrate on my reflection and think about what I was supposed to be doing before I ended up in Nazi Germany. Technically, I was an object from the future. Before I returned to 1985, she explained that there was much more she and the other scientists needed to learn about the drug and its effects on me. They would run tests the next time I was in 1940s Germany. She handed me a book. It was a copy of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine. (sighs) Corny, right? At least it wasn't Mein Kampf. She told me to keep the book with me at all times. Since it was a stronger anchor between us, I could concentrate on the book the next time I visited her. She seemed awfully confident I would come back willingly. I gazed into the mirror 
and remembered that the effects of the LSD had worn off. She must have thought the same thing, because she went back to the bookcase and took down a cobalt blue bottle with a label written in several languages. Under the German and French was the English word that told me what was in the bottle. Laudanum. She went into the kitchen and came back with an empty teacup. She poured some of the reddish-brown liquid into the cup and handed it to me. Is the time travel drug in this? She nodded. I drank down the bitter liquid in one swallow and felt it warm my limbs immediately. My vision blurred slightly when I looked into the mirror, but I was able to concentrate well enough that before she could say goodbye, I was no longer in Madeline's sitting room. I was lying on the floor of Christina's family room. Joel knelt next to me, holding my hand. Christina was on the other side of me, holding a cool washcloth to my forehead. They both smiled when I opened my eyes. Craig was pacing back and forth. He stopped when he saw I was awake. The flag still hung over the mantel. I didn't look at it for too long for fear of ending up back on that train platform or somewhere worse. Somehow, I still had Madeline's book clutched in my hand. Craig didn't say anything, but I could tell he had questions. He helped me get to my feet. Christina's parents looked worried, but I think they were worried about how they would explain having a black girl and her half-Mexican, half-Irish boyfriend in their living room to the local paramedics. Once it was confirmed that I was feeling better, Christina's mother quickly ushered us to the front door. Her father didn't want her to go out with us now that he knew who her friends were, but after some convincing on her mom's part, her dad agreed to let her leave the house. As soon as we were all settled in the car, Craig and I in the back seat and Joel and Christina in the front, the questions started flying my way. What else had I taken with the acid? Was my blood sugar low? Did I need to get something to eat? Did my head hurt from hitting it on the floor? Craig wanted to know where the book had come from. I caught Joel looking at me in the rearview mirror and ignored Craig's question. I told them I'd skipped dinner and had low blood sugar. Joel stopped at a drive-thru on the way to the show at the Demi Club. Demi was short for democratic, but no matter what you called it, it was a hole-in-the-wall dive bar that featured live hardcore and post-punk bands. Most shows were all ages, but they sold beer at the bar and shots of cheap booze and didn't bother to card anyone. If you didn't feel like drinking, you had your pick of drugs to buy from dealers in the parking lot. The Demi looked like a cinder block shack perched on the top of a hill with a sheer drop-off behind the building. Most people would assume it was condemned, and they wouldn't be completely wrong. Black lights and beer signs behind the bar were the only illumination inside the Demi, except for the weak bear bulb lighting the bathroom. Bathroom singular. Everybody lined up for the same bathroom, whether they were a guy or a girl. As you can imagine, it was a cesspool of human bacteria. It was safer to take a piss or puke in the bushes surrounding the parking lot. <laughs> I'd rather end up with broken glass embedded in my knees from puking in the bushes than touch the floor of the bathroom with anything other than the bottom of my combat boots. Craig followed me to the bathroom. In fact, since I woke up on Christina's family room floor, Craig was practically my shadow. I appreciated the fact that he was worried about me, but I needed some time alone to think about the things Madeline had told me. And I couldn't think with Craig playing 20 questions. Why did I pass out? Where did the book come from? How did I come down so fast? I didn't have a lot of answers, and I wasn't sure I wanted to tell Craig what I knew anyway. Even if I did tell him, he'd probably think I was crazy or just had a bad trip. Technically, my visit to Nazi Germany was a bad trip. It could have been much worse if I hadn't found Madeline. I was grateful for her help, and yet, part of me wished I'd never met her. Sure, she saved me from Nazis, but I still wasn't sure I could trust her. I mean, she was testing an experimental drug on people without their knowledge. Most of what she told me could have been lies. How was I supposed to figure out the truth if I only knew her version of the story? I didn't have time for Craig's questions. I needed to figure out how I was supposed to accept my new reality. Would I have to leave school? My friends? My family? Madeline seemed to have all the answers. 
but the only way I could talk to her was to go back to 1940s Germany. No fucking way that was happening anytime soon if I could help it. There were six people ahead of us in the line for the bathroom. Craig wouldn't stop asking questions. Questions I didn't want other people to overhear. Maybe all the acid I'd been taking made me paranoid, but I knew that what was happening to me was supposed to be a secret. Not only was it a secret because people would think I was crazy, but if Madeline and I were the good guys, then there had to be bad guys, right? Besides, I'd recently watched a documentary about the Tuskegee experiment and didn't want to end up dead to further scientific discovery that benefited white people. I had better things to do than ending up in some lab somewhere with people in white coats sticking needles in me. Paranoid or not, you never knew who was listening. And now that I'd had my eyes open to secret knowledge, I had to wonder what else was happening under the noses of normal people. I needed to get my thoughts together. I wished Craig would just fuck off so I could talk to Joel. He knew what had been happening to me, and since he read a lot of books on metaphysics, he might have some insight into time travel. I mean, at least theoretically. I told Craig to buy me a beer while I waited in line for the bathroom. At first, he refused to leave my side. Then I told him I'd think about spending the night with him. I'd probably regret that later, but for the moment, I had some peace and quiet. Well, as much peace and quiet as could be had in a line for the bathroom of a dive bar with a live hardcore band on stage. I closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and tried to center myself enough to process some of the crazy thoughts running through my head. Just as my mind started to settle, someone spoke inside my head. Hello, Lizzie. I must admit, you don't look anything like I imagined you would. The voice was distinctly male, with an accent I couldn't place. I whipped around, trying to find him in the crowd. The place was packed, and the poor lighting made it difficult to see people's faces clearly. Instead of giving myself a headache by squinting at everyone who walked by, I answered him. I guess you're the bad guy. Laughter filled my head. You think it's funny to stalk a 17-year-old girl and try to scare her? The laughter stopped. Did I scare you? Most people introduced themselves and let me see their faces. Sneaking into my head uninvited is rude and kind of creepy. Silence. It's been a long night. I'm tired and don't feel like playing whatever game this is. Of course you're tired. Traveling to the past and back in one evening would make anyone tired, especially a novice like you. The teasing had gone out of his tone. My hands were trembling. How do you know I was in the past tonight? Because I was there, too. I looked around the room frantically, trying to find someone who didn't belong. Most people were dressed in jeans, black t-shirts, leather jackets, and Doc Martens. <laughs> it's funny how people who work so hard to avoid conformity all ended up looking the same. Cookie-cutter anarchists. I spotted him. Even if he hadn't been dressed in a vintage suit circa 1942... His waist-length ginger hair would have made him stand out in the crowd. He smiled and crooked a finger at me the moment we made eye contact. I still needed to pee, but I could hold it a bit longer. I made my way through the crowd, skirting the mosh pit at the front of the stage and managed to avoid being seen by Craig on my way to the end of the bar. There was something familiar about the man. I couldn't figure out where, but I had seen him before. He handed me a shot glass full of amber liquid that matched the one in his other hand. A toast. He continued to speak inside my head. Aren't you going to tell me who you are? Like Madeline, he tapped his temple to remind me to speak to him with my mind. Why? <laughs> it's so loud in here, no one will hear us anyway. He sighed and continued speaking to me telepathically. Weren't you just wondering a few moments ago who might be listening to your conversation with that boy? A shiver ran down my spine. How long had he been listening to my thoughts? 
He raised his shot glass in a toast and nodded for me to do the same. I just stared at him. If you don't join me in a toast, you'll hurt my feelings. When people hurt my feelings, I get angry. You don't want me to get angry. My heartbeat sped up and I raised my glass. That's better. Here's to new alliances and unknown possibilities. He clinked his glass against mine. We downed our shots at the same time. Whiskey and something else. Something metallic that tasted the way rust on an iron gate smelt. What was in that drink? Laughter filled my head again. Whiskey. What else? The laughter stopped. My blood. What the f- Before I could finish my sentence, he grabbed my wrist and everything went black. I woke up, strapped to a table under the bright glare of operating room lights. My head pounded and my tongue felt like a lead weight coated in sandpaper. It hurt to swallow. All around me the room was in shadows. The overhead light cast the only illumination. I squinted into the darkness and color swam before my eyes. I could barely make out the shapes of people a few feet away. They stood near another table, staring down at the person strapped to it. Even in the dimly lit room, I could see they were wearing white lab coats. Apparently, my worst fears were now a reality. She's awake. A woman's voice. Madeline stepped out of the shadows to stare down at me. Relief washed over me and tension left my body. Until I got a good look at Madeline. She was wearing a jacket with the SS insignia on the lapels. She pushed a metal cart with a tray of surgical instruments on it. She was smiling, but it wasn't a friendly smile. I felt nauseous and the room spun. My chest tightened and I couldn't get enough air. My vision blurred around the edges and I blacked out again. When I came to, I was lying in a field. It was dusk. A cold wind made the tall grass sway back and forth. I shivered. The ground beneath me was wet, making my clothes damp. I don't know how long I'd been lying there, but my skin was covered in goosebumps. I was freezing. A man appeared before me, the red-haired man from the bar. I tried to sit up, tried to get away from him. He knelt before me and grasped my shoulders. I'm not going to hurt you. He spoke the words aloud, and I finally recognized him. He was the Egyptian priest. I knew I had seen him before. Then I remembered Madeline in the operating room. Where? He took off his suit jacket and wrapped it around my shoulders. We're about ten miles outside of Berlin. What happened? I swallowed and winced. He offered me a flask. I reached for it and then drew my hand back. Take it. It will help warm you up, he said. More whiskey spiked with your blood? No thanks. It's just whiskey. You can trust me. I'm the reason you're no longer in that Nazi operating room. Now I was really confused. Explain. He ran a hand through his hair and looked off into the distance. He told me he was a scientist from the future. He developed a time travel serum and used himself as a test subject to travel back to 1940s Germany. He was fascinated by some of the scientific discoveries the Nazis made and wanted to see the experiments firsthand. Why was Madeline there? She's not your friend, Lizzie. No shit. How did they find out about the serum? They found items in my pockets that shouldn't exist. I refused to tell them what they wanted to know, so they tortured me. What happens now that they know time travel is possible? He turned to face me. His expression was grim. They changed the future. What do you mean? How? I escaped before they forced me to tell them how to make the serum, but they had samples of my blood. They used my blood to recreate the serum. I was getting impatient. Got it. How can they change the future? They already have. They've been dosing people like you and recruiting them to go into the past and future to change the timeline so Germany wins the war and controls the planet. How was that even possible? What did that have to do with me? Had I altered the timeline? 
There were too many questions running through my head. Each new question increased my anxiety. The only question I wanted an answer for at that moment seemed to be the most important one to ask. Who the fuck are you? I told you, I'm a scientist and a friend. Ha! Bullshit. You followed me through time, listened in on my thoughts, spiked my drink, and brought me back to Nazi Germany. I don't know how friends behave where you're from, but I don't consider any of what you've done to me friendly. Not even saving you from Nazi scientists? I just stared at him. What do you want me to say, Lizzie? An apology would be a good place to start. Then you can tell me who the fuck you are. He looked like he wanted to yell at me, or possibly hit me. He did neither. Instead, he walked a few paces away and appeared to be getting himself under control before answering my questions. My name is Elias Morgenstern. I was born in 2095, and I'm the inventor of time travel. I laughed. Not dainty, ladylike laughter, but braying, insane person laughter. (laughs) He folded his arms and glared at me. Sorry. I know that at least some of what you told me is true, but it still sounds fucking crazy. He agreed. Let me get this straight. Nazis concocted a special batch of LSD using a time travel serum they found in your blood in the hopes of what? Finding people like you who respond to the serum to send them backwards or forwards through time to take over the world. Okay, I see. I know it sounds ridiculous, but truth is often stranger than fiction, as they say. They do say that. You must have taken a lot of LSD because you have a lot of the serum in your system. Somehow Madeline was able to pull you away from me in the time stream. She's found a way to track you and control your destinations when you travel. The book she'd given me. She did say it was a stronger connection between us. Where were you planning to take me when you kidnapped me from the Demi? Somewhere safe. Why me? Because you are their most successful test subject. They were going to drain every drop of your blood to make more serum. So, you're not the bad guy? He laughed. (laughs) No. Now what? Am I just supposed to stay here in the past? I thought it would be safer. Now, I'm not so sure. Did... You invent anything else they stole from you? Why? Madeline had this weapon that she called Pandora's Box. She showed it to me at that bookstore. In fact, she opened it. His hands became fists at his sides. She what? She used it when the soldiers came looking for me. There were blackened, bloody holes where their eyes used to be. They died screaming. How long did she leave it open? I don't know. A few seconds, maybe? I need you to take me to where you saw it. They can't be allowed to keep it. It's dangerous in anyone's hands, but especially so in theirs. It wasn't wrong. How will we get there? Take my hand and picture it in your mind. Seconds after taking his hand, we were standing in Madeline's sitting room. She hadn't bothered to remove the soldiers' bodies off the floor, and the box was where she'd left it on the mantel. I picked up the box and handed it to Elias. He turned the box around carefully and examined it from every angle. He gazed at it like it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. Maybe showing him the box wasn't such a good idea. Once again, I'd ignored my intuition. What are you going to do with the box? Open it, of course. I thought you wanted to save the future. I do. This weapon will allow me to prevent the Nazis from winning the war. Yeah, but what if you open it and the world ends? That's a risk I'm willing to take. He was really going to open the box. I knew what could happen if the box was opened for just a few seconds. I dreaded the thought of what would happen if he opened it and didn't bother to close it. Please, Elias, don't. There has to be a better way to stop the Nazis and save the future. Don't you think I've tried to find other ways? If you open the box here in this time, everyone I know will cease to exist. 
If I don't open the box now, the Nazis will be able to proceed with their agenda of genocide unchecked. They'll wipe out your ancestors before you're even born. I'd never see my mom and dad again if he opened the box. I'd never see Joel or even Craig. Panic gripped me. Then I saw the laudanum. I grabbed the bottle and swallowed half of the liquid inside and thought of my bedroom. Elias opened the box. I remembered to close my eyes and cover my ears. Standing this close, the heat generated by the phosphorus was almost unbearable. How had Madeline been able to stand it? When that hellish screeching filled the air, Elias screamed and everything went black. I never made it back to my bedroom. Never saw my family or friends again. There was nothing and no one to go back to. There were no objects to connect me to the future, present, or past. All time ceased to exist. And now, I'm forever trapped, falling through the void. Today's author was Michelle Renee Lane, with her story, An Acid Trip Through Time told by G.P. McKenzie. To find out more about today's author and voice actor, please visit thewickedlibrary.com to check out their bio pages. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. That's me. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved.